facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. A thunderous Thursday to you. I'm so happy. I don't know if that even is funny. Uh, so glad that you're with me today on The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149 is the number to call. Toll free to talk to me, and you can also email the show, kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com, and follow me on Twitter, at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. But once again, that phone number is probably the easiest way to reach me. This is a call-in program, after all, 888-914-9149. Don't be shy. Lots to talk about today. Of course, it is Thursday. Thursday is a day in which Catholics tend to focus, traditionally have focused on their Eucharistic piety, thinking a lot about the Eucharist. A lot of people are in the habit of maybe singing or praying through Adoro Te Devote by St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor, that beautiful Eucharistic hymn. That has so much great theology in it, but it's a great day to focus on it because, of course, Thursday was the day that Jesus instituted the Eucharist at the Last Supper. And did you know that Pope Benedict, he is still teaching us from beyond the grave. You might have heard about this. Uh, Producer Jim, uh, speaking of email, he emailed me an article about this, about a new book that Pope Benedict has published posthumously. And he gave instructions, almost like like in a last will and testament, to say, hey, I want this book put out there after I depart and go to the house of the Father. So now we have it. It was published in Italian, but there's been some excerpts of it that have been produced in English, and I want to share with you some thoughts that Pope Benedict had about the Eucharist and how he was kind of lamenting the fact that the Eucharist is being, quote-unquote, Protestantized in several Catholic quarters, and I want to get your take on this. Have you seen this? Do you think he's right about this? And has this happened in your parish? And I'm going to explain what, what all this means in just a little bit. Plus, Later on in the show, the show is about faith, facts, and fun. It's Kale Clark show on Relevant Radio. I'm going to be sharing with you just a hysterical article about Airbnb-style reviews of wombs, if you will, newborn babies reviewing their gestational accommodations, as it were, uh, as you might leave a review for an Airbnb that you stayed in. It's, it's funny stuff, and I can't wait to share that with you. But once again, that number to call, 888-914-9149. We've got so much more to share with you as well, other than all that stuff. We just got a potpourri of, remember potpourri? That was like such a thing. You got to leave a bag of potpourri everywhere. Well, we've got got lots of uh, fun stuff for you later in the program, but I do not want to spoil it. I will save that to keep you in suspense, but I do want to talk about Pope Benedict and how he described the quote-unquote Protestantization of the Eucharist. Hannah Brockhouse, uh, writing for the Catholic News Agency, did a piece on this, and the, the particular essay in question that talks about this was actually written in 2018. And it, this is what he says. He says that there is an understanding of communion as merely quote-unquote a supper, he also said this, quote, in such a situation of a very advanced Protestantization of the understanding of the Eucharist, intercommunion appears natural, end of quote. Okay, so what's intercommunion? And this is simply when Protestants and perhaps others are invited to partake in the Eucharist at a Mass. And I, 
I, I had an experience of this myself. As you guys know, I'm a revert to the faith. I'm a cradle Catholic who was you know, not very well catechized, not very well formed at the time, didn't know the reasons for my faith, walked away when I was in my late high school years, early university years, became an agnostic, eventually came to faith in Christ through Protestant campus missionaries. And I'm thankful for them. I'm grateful for them because they they gave me reasons for faith. Um that I needed to hear, the, especially the historical underpinnings of the faith. That's what brought me back to faith in Jesus. They convinced me, though, to get out of the Catholic Church. They were they had a lot of misconceptions about Catholicism. One thing led to another. I went to a Protestant seminary, got into pastoral ministry. It was during that time that I attended my cousin Lisa's wedding. It took place in a Catholic parish. And I can't remember whether I was in seminary or whether I was actually in ministry at the time, pastoral work, but I remember the the parish priest at her wedding mass invited anybody who believed in Jesus to come forward and partake in communion. And I hate to use the, the tags liberal or conservative when it comes to the faith. I mean, these are political categories. I prefer to use orthodox or unorthodox, but I think you know what I'm talking about when I when I say that kind of lean more towards the liberal side of things, let's put it that way. And at the time, I thought it was great. I thought it was absolutely incredible. I thought, this this guy is so ecumenical. This is, this is forward-thinking stuff. This is, gonna, this is the stuff we need to promote the reunification of all Christians. And so I went to the sacristy after the Mass, and I just congratulated on congratulated him on this. I thought well, that was fantastic. And... and now, of course, I have a different opinion, but I want to ask you this question. Do, do you think that, the, that B-16 was right about this? Have you seen this type of thing happen in your own parishes? 888-914-9149 is Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And here's another thing that Pope Benedict said with respect to this. He said, and he was talking about, again, the state of Eucharistic life and belief in the church today. He said, quote, one process of great impact is the almost complete disappearance of the sacrament of penance, end of quote. The almost complete disappearance of the sacrament of penance. And by that, he does not mean that the, the sacrament doesn't exist anymore or people aren't celebrating it. I think what he's referring to there, and admittedly, I'm, I'm reading between the lines here, but Speaking of lines, the lines for communion tend to be quite long. <laughs> when you go to Mass, the lines for confession are comparatively quite short, uh, if not non-existent. And, and that's an issue. That's an issue. As, as Peter Crave, Dr. Peter Crave, a, a prolific author and professor at Boston College for so many years and a great friend of the program, he's been a guest here on the Cale Clark Show. As Peter, Peter Crave once said, we're either living in, when you look at the length of the communion lines, and the brevity of the confessional lines, we're either living in the greatest generation of saints that's ever been seen on the face of the earth, or we're utterly delusional. And I think I think he's probably implying that we're, we're leaning towards the latter end of the spectrum, and I would agree with him on that. And so the Pope notices this as well. And so this is, again, this is part of a, a series of essays, if you will, that the Pope Emeritus penned after he resigned the papacy in 2013. And I'm not sure, I don't know what, 
I, I would guess that he just simply wouldn't want to be seen as in any way undermining the ministry of Pope Francis. And I don't necessarily think that what's written here would undermine the ministry of Pope Francis, but maybe he just didn't think it was appropriate or the right time to put this stuff out while he was still alive with two living popes. So obviously he wouldn't be actually actively directing the affairs of the church, of course, but in seclusion, um, essentially having extended retreat time, knowing that he was going to soon go home to the house of the father. But this single volume of essays have been collected together is called What is Christianity? What is Christianity? And it was published in Italian last month in January, but Sandro Magister, uh, who's a, a very well-known Vatican journalist, Sandro Magister says that he had arranged for this to be to be published after his death. So this was his plan all along. So there's a there's a magazine uh, in Italy called L'Espresso. And uh, speaking of espresso, I'm actually uh, drinking one right now. i got to perk myself up here. But uh, that just reminded me to take a sip. Uh, the Italian magazine L'Espresso uh, published an excerpt of one of the essays, which is, a, which is called The Meaning of Communion. And again, this, this was finished in June of 2018. And, and the occasion for him writing this, Pope Emeritus Benedict, was that at, at, at this time in his native Germany... The German church, and we know there's been all kinds of issues with the German church, they were talking about whether intercommunion was a good idea. And intercommunion is Protestants essentially receiving the Eucharist alongside Catholics during the context of the Mass. And Benedict obviously was not not in favor of this. And the particular question that they were talking about at the time was whether Catholics who were married to Protestants, if those Protestant spouses were eligible to receive the Eucharist. And so, according to Hannah Brockhaus, uh, in this, and I haven't, I haven't read this, uh, I, I don't know Italian, um, but I, I, I haven't read this, I haven't read the primary source, but according to Hannah Brockhaus, writing for CNA, in this essay, Pope Benedict talked about other times in the history of Germany when this thing would come up again and again and again. And one of the times that this happened was during the, the time of World War II. And he said this, quote, this is the English translation of Benedict's letter, especially during the years of the war, in the evangelical camp, a division developed between the Third Reich and what were called the Deutsch Christen, Christ, Christian Germans on one side, and the Beckenende Kirche, and my, forgive me if I mispronounced that, if I butchered the German there, the Beckenende Kirche, the confessing church on the other end of quote. So what's he talking about there? He's talking about in amongst evangelicals in Germany, not, not Catholics, but there was, there was a division that took place. And I think what he was probably talking about were Protestants, evangelicals who opposed Hitler, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, who was martyred under the Nazi regime, and those who tried to make peace with the Third Reich, with the, Nazi, with the Nazi regime. And the Pope went on to say that this split that happened led to kind of a, an accord or uh, a friendship between evangelicals and Catholics because they had a lot in common. They, they, they opposed Hitler, and they had some common ground there. And then they started talking about, maybe we should have common communion because we're united in this. We're, we're fighting the, these evils 
Can we not partake of the Eucharist together? And so there's a great desire for this, and you can see why they'd want this. But Pope Benedict said, here's the problem. Any kind of, this would be kind of a false unity, because it would be a unity that's determined by politics, by what he called political and social forces, rather than a religious foundation. What the Eucharist actually means. Do you believe what the Eucharist is, or who the Eucharist is, of course, is probably a better way of saying it. It is Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So it really is about the search for Christ. And if the Eucharist is Christ, it makes all the difference in the world and in the next world as well. So it's not a good idea to try to agree to disagree, as it were, uh, about these, uh, these very, very crucial items. And then there's another time in history that, that Pope Benedict talked about, and this happened more closer to our own times. The fall of the Berlin Wall, the reunification of Germany. And he said at that time as well, there was this movement once again to try to bring politics into the church. And obviously this idea of a united Germany was incredibly exciting and intoxicating and so many people had hoped and prayed and worked for this for so many years, said that sometimes there was a political act that would happen in church in which non-Catholics would be seen receiving the Eucharist, drinking from the Eucharistic chalice. And they tried to use this to promote the unity of all Germans. But this was wrong. This was absolutely politicizing the Eucharist and ought not to have been done. And this is what the Pope said. He said, quote, thinking back on it, still today, I feel anew with great force the estrangement of faith that came from this. And when presidents of the Federal Republic of Germany, who at the same time were presidents of the synods of their church, have regularly called aloud for interconfessional Eucharistic communion, and your confession, by the way, is what you believe, your statement of faith, called aloud for interconfessional Eucharistic communion, I see how the demand for a common loaf and chalice may serve other purposes, end of quote. And of course, those purposes would be merely political purposes. So what do you think about this? Have you seen this happen in your Catholic communities, in your parishes? Uh, have, have, have priests that you, that you know, have, have, actually, have they tried this? What did you say about this? Did you do anything about this? I'd love to hear from you, 888 Nine one four nine. Let's go to Kathleen in Diamond Bar, California. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Kale. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thanks for calling in. Where Where is Diamond Bar in California? Diamond Bar is about thirty minutes um, from Disneyland. Um, oh, let me, okay. North of Disneyland. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, let me tell you my situation, Kale, and I'm, I'm so curious. I'm feel like I was supposed to listen to the radio station today. So my mm-hmm. son um, got married, and he is actually married to a gal whose parents are pastors in Cincinnati and good friends of Scott Hahn's father. Okay. So when my son married this gal, I know these parents very well, and they are the most godly Christian mm-hmm 
serve the Lord every day in their in their life. And so yeah. when my son married this gal, she converted to Catholicism. And the day of the wedding, we were having breakfast before the wedding, and she started crying that she could not receive communion. And mm. she called Scott Hahn's dad, and they spoke. And I was brokenhearted because I know how devout she is. But here's the thing, Kale. During communion, the priest in San Diego was wonderful. He said, mm-hmm. you know, I know there's some people here that are not Catholic. Please come up. I would like to give you a blessing. Mm-hmm. And after communion, he actually walked over to this pastor, husband and wife, and asked them to bless him, to bless him after mm-hmm. communion, which was a beautiful thing. But during the ceremony... These parents have a son who's living with his girlfriend, and the girl is Catholic. And, Kale, she went to communion, mm. but and I know she went, she shouldn't have, mm-hmm. but, but these two friends that I know that are devout Christians could not mm. go. And it was very hard for me. I did a lot yeah. of searching on the Internet. How do I? So how would you respond to that, Kale? Yeah, a couple of things there, Kathleen. First of all, th- thanks for calling in. I, I really appreciate this call, and, and I'm so glad that you did. And please call back any time. And I'm so glad that you were listening and tuned tuned in. And and because it 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 definitely uh, what we're talking about today certainly speaks to that situation. I would say first of all, with respect to those who are devout Christians who uh, are not able to receive the body and blood, soul and divinity of our Lord uh, in the context of the Mass communion. Well, I think the very word itself, communion, is really the key here because it really has a double meaning in the Catholic Church. It doesn't just mean you're receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And when, when, a, when, a, uh, when a Catholic goes up uh, in, in the communion line and receives our Lord, uh, the priest or the bishop or whoever it may be who's Uh, dispensing the Eucharist, will say the body of Christ, and the person says amen. And that amen, when they say amen, it's not just an assent saying, yes, I believe, I believe that this is Jesus. It's also an assent to everything that the Catholic Church teaches about faith and morality, faith and morals, what to believe, how to live. And and this is really the whole package. So you're consenting to the entire uh, package of Catholic teaching, not just the Eucharist, but everything. And so that's why, and this goes back, by the way, to the beginning. This isn't something uh, I'm making up by any stretch of the imagination. I would encourage you to uh, try to find a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You can actually look it up online, too. People put it online and and, and read it. And St. Justin Martyr, way, way back in the mid-2nd century, and he, he was kind of in that Johannine tradition, you know, he was taught by disciples of John the Apostle. St. Justin Martyr, he, he wrote about the Mass to the Roman Emperor because he wanted to explain the faith. There were so many misconceptions about the Eucharist and about what Catholics believed and what they did. He wanted to set the record straight. So in his document, it was called the First Apology, in which an apologetic is simply a, def- a defense of the faith. He, he, he goes through this and he said that we only allow those to receive the Eucharist who believe, who are baptized, number one, believe our teaching and are living according to the, to the way that Christ has enjoined us to live. So in other words, 
they ha- you have to believe everything that the church teaches, and you have to be in this state of grace and, and living accord with the moral precepts of the church as well. So, so I would say to, to somebody who is a believer in Jesus and who, and I'm dealing with somebody, one of my very best friends, we've had this ongoing text conversation for many, many months about the Eucharist. And, and he's at this point where he pretty much buys into it now. And now he's asking about the papacy. There's so, there's so many things, right? But I would say to somebody who, if, if a person is at the point where they actually do believe that the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, is the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ given to us in an unbloody manner, sacramentally, if they really believe that, why not just become Catholic? Because you can't get that anywhere else. So you could get it in an Orthodox church. I know they have a valid Eucharist in the Orthodox churches of the East as well, but they don't have the papacy. I, I do believe they used to believe in the papacy. That's another show for another day. But, but I would ask that person, if you really do believe that this is Jesus and you want to receive him in the Eucharist, why not just go ahead and become Catholic? That, that's what I would say, Kathleen. So I, I don't know what you think about that. That's a brilliant response, and that's exactly what my husband said. And I, I asked her, do you believe this is the actual body and blood of Christ? And she said, I do. But mm. I don't know, and I didn't go far enough to say, well, then why don't you just become Catholic? Because they're such incredible people. Mm. I, I, yeah, 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 they just do so much to further the kingdom of Christ. Yeah, so. no, no doubt. You know, and there are very, very sincere believers in Jesus who are what we call separated brethren, separated brothers and sisters. And and I think that's a good, if, if you're able to pursue that conversation, that line of questioning with them, I think that's a really good question to ask them. Uh, and that might open up uh, new vistas of possibilities for them that they maybe haven't even considered, that they could actually do this. And and so I think that's uh, something to do for sure. And yeah, it is, uh, to, with respect to your other um, point there, about people that are objectively living in situations of that are irregular, uh, sinful situations, and they're coming forward with no qualms, seemingly to receive the Eucharist, and uh, that, those are those are tough situations. And and sometimes uh, the, the priest or deacon may not be aware, or bishop may not be aware of the person's situ- personal situation when they're, when they're in the communion lineup, of course, and and even if they did know. Um, the person, who knows, the person may have gone to confession right before mass. You never know. Right. And so that's an interesting, uh, factoid as well, but I know what you're talking about. I, I, I definitely feel you there. And Kathleen, I, I really appreciate the call. Got to get out. We've got to, we're up against a break here, but if you're on the line, please stay there. 888-914-9149. This is the Kale Clark show giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hey, welcome back to the program. We're having a great conversation about the Eucharist, 888-914-9149. It's a Thursday. Of course, that was the day that Jesus instituted the Eucharist on Holy Thursday. And we're talking about a posthumous essay published by Pope Benedict. He gave instructions for it to be put out there after his death. And this was written back in 2018. He was very concerned with what he called the Protestantization of the Eucharist. He was concerned about uh, intercommunion, that communion was becoming almost a free-for-all in certain Catholic quarters, especially in his native Germany. And everybody was being invited up to the Eucharistic table, no matter what they believed about it, whether they were Catholic or not. 
And I asked you guys, have you seen this in your own parishes? Has this been ex your experience at all? If so, how did you deal with it? What did you do about it, if anything? 888-914-9149. Let's go to, you know what? I'm actually going to go to Larry in Roswell, New Mexico on line four. Larry, are the aliens real? What's happening out there? I don't know. They are. We have uh, <laughs> we have aliens <laughs> coming across the border every day. Oh yeah, well that, yeah, that's a that's a whole other uh, topic, of course, and and uh, with regard to all these balloons and everything, and uh, you know, I, I I'm certain that they're they're spy craft, but I don't know, I don't I don't I I don't know, I'm not going to get into uh, galactical explanations right yet. But anyways, since you're calling from Roswell, I had had to mention it, Larry. What's your take on this whole situation with the Eucharist? Okay, so it's all along the same lines. I have many family members that are gay, and I have friends, and I love them just like you love anybody else, but I don't condone their lifestyles. <clears throat> and on the other side of the coin is we as Catholics, we believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. At least most of us do, or a lot of us do. <clears throat> and I just think it's uh, it'd be a mockery to myself and to the church if I attended a gay marriage, because I don't believe in that. God gives us choices, and so we love those sinners, but we still have to respect ourselves and Christ's teaching. Mm -hmm. So if you don't believe it's the body and blood of Christ, you should not be accepting it as a Catholic in another church. Um, basically, it's crackers and grape juice, typically. <clears throat> and I just think it's such a blessing to have that sacrament, whereas we still love other Christians, it just should not be allowed, and I think, I think it's a, I just think it's a wrongdoing on the part of the priests that do that. Yeah, Larry, thanks for that call, and I, I think, I think probably it's, the motive is probably a, a misguided attempt at you know, for trying to find common ground or the ecumenical movement. But one of the things that Pope Benedict, and thanks for that call, Larry, in, in Roswell, New Mexico, I think one of the things that Pope Benedict always talked about with respect to the ecumenical movement, and we just finished the week of prayer for Christian unity not long ago, just a couple weeks ago, culminating with the uh, Feast of the Conver Conversion of St. Paul. St. Paul, of course, talks so much about one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And, and Pope Benedict always reminded us that the it's corporate reunion that we're searching for in the ecumenical movement. It's not agreeing to disagree. It's not sitting around the campfire and singing Kumbaya. We actually have to be together, united in one visible body. And that's the unity that Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that they might be one. Why? So that the world would know that you sent me. That's what Jesus prayed. So they have to see it to believe it. And it is a stumbling block. The disunity among Christians is a stumbling block to unbelievers. When they look at Christians and say, well, how could I believe this? These guys don't even agree with each other on, on what the substance of the faith is. And so it is a scandal. It is a stumbling block, to be sure. So let, let's, let's go now to John in Orlando, Florida. Hi, John. Hey, Kale. My first time calling into you, but hey. I love Northern Radio and I especially love this topic. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I don't get to Orlando that often. I work throughout Florida, but this, this is really near and dear to my heart, this topic. Um, 
I'm, I was actually, my first communion was at the time of the Second Vatican Council. That's how old I wow. am. So I, 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 remember the, the, I remember the incredible awe and reverence uh, for the Mass, and we could talk about that all night. But mm-hmm. uh, then I went, to a, I went to an Ivy League school at Cornell, and when I went to Mass there in the 70s, we actually started, the, they would pass the Eucharist in the chairs in the, in the auditorium-style church. I mean, it became a real mockery of the Mass for the years I was there, and that was what happened. Yeah. We would be singing uh, uh, The Answers Blowing in the Wind as a communion <laughs> hymn and all these other songs. But, yeah. you know, but, but then, you know, fast forward to now, and um, we have a great relationship in this town that I live in, in, in outside of Orlando with the Anglican. There's an <laughs> Anglican church that's really on fire, and I've gotten to know many of them well, but, mm-hmm. um, and they, um, they talk to us often, many of our friends and myself, about how much they believe, in particular, that this is the body and blood, soul, and divinity mm-hmm. of Christ, mm-hmm. and that they have it as well. So, yeah, there have been times when our priest in one of our parishes, who knows them, has allowed them to receive, because this is the irony. We, please address yeah. this. So many Catholics going to Mass don't understand, don't believe, and don't honestly give a darn, frankly, as you can tell. Mm. And so you have this Anglican walking in the door who honestly, fervently believes, yep. doesn't get the mess, hasn't gotten the memo that they're not Catholic. <laughs> and, and so they're receiving. Um, and, then, and then real quickly, in case we don't get yeah. to talk again, the interesting story, this one friend of mine, just so you know, his daughter married a Catholic. Okay. And now his whole family's converting to the Catholic faith after having received wow. the communion for the last couple of years as Anglicans. So I just think there's an interesting sideline story there. But um, mm. what, what do you think about this idea that they actually believe and you have to try to convince them that they don't <laughs> or that something's different? Yeah. Well, John, first of all, thanks for calling in. Love to hear from first-time callers, long-time listeners, and I really appreciate you calling in. You raised a lot of interesting points there. And wow, you, you mentioned you did your first communion around the time of the Second Vatican Council. So you've seen a lot of things happen between then and now and a lot of misunderstandings of the council. It kind of takes me back to when Pope Benedict was elected as pontiff. I, I was a huge fan of, of his, even from before, as Cardinal Ratzinger. And so I was really excited about this, and I expressed that at my, at my local parish, you know, the first time I was there for Mass after after uh, the conclave. And and I wasn't at the conclave, but I was just watching it on TV like everybody else. But but uh, I remember this one guy, this one parishioner, his name was Marty. And he said, he was just so down in the dumps. Like, I was excited. He looked like he was going to cry. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, well, Pope Benedict has been elected. I said, well, isn't this a great thing? And he said, no, he's going to tear down everything Vatican II ever stood for. And I'm thinking, have you actually read the documents of Vatican II? What? It, he was there, by the way. He was at Vatican II, as was JP II, and I think that that was the the primary, you know, leap motif, if you will, of of John Paul's papacy and Benedict's after him. I really do think that their big motivation was to give the correct interpretation of Vatican II. I think that's such a large part of what both of those guys were all about. And there, there were I, and I grew up during that time as well. I mean, I I remember you know, dancers at Mass. I, I went to a parish that when I was growing up that was quite liberal, if you will. Um, all kinds of uh, unorthodox things, shall we say, were, were taking place during the liturgy, all in an attempt to be quote-unquote relevant. Uh, not like we are here at Relevant Radio, but you know what I'm talking about, the wrong kind of relevancy. <laughs> Irrelevancy, I guess you could say, at the end. But um, yeah, the fallout from Vatican II, I, I, I will say this. Now, 
With respect to your question about 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 the Anglicans and, and my friend that I was just just talking about with you guys, I just mentioned this a minute ago. I've been I've been texting with this guy for years, trying to we were talking about the faith. We're really good friends. Uh, he's an evangelical, and he's thinking about Catholicism very very heavily. And at one point, just just looking at this question of the Eucharist, he said this to me. He said, "If I ever did believe in the Eucharist, if I ever got to that point, I would just simply become an Anglican." I said, well, that, that's not going to work. Why not? Because even if there, there are some high Anglicans, if, as it were, that do believe that, that the Eucharist becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but they could say the same words that a Catholic priest might say, but it doesn't make it happen. Just like if, if I said those words over unleavened bread and wine with a drop of water in it, it wouldn't become the Eucharist. I could be saying the exact same words. It would not happen. And the, and the reason is because, so even even if, and I don't think that this is the case, but even if they were using the right formula in the Anglican communion, it would not become the Eucharist. Why? Well, for, for, for the Eucharist to be legit, you have to have a validly ordained priest or bishop in the line of apostolic succession for that to happen. And that's why the Orthodox churches of the East still have a valid Eucharist, because they have maintained apostolic succession. But the Anglicans didn't. At some point, that got off track. And I'm not sure exactly when. That, I don't know if anybody's done studies on that. I'm sure somebody's written about that. But, And I've heard some conjecture that at some point along the line, they changed the... Uh, for every sacrament, there's the, the form and the matter, right? You say, what's the matter? <laughs> no kidding. Well, that's the actual stuff. So, for example, for baptism, it has to be water. You can't use Molson Canadian or Coca-Cola as much as you might like that has to be water, and then there's the form, and the form is, of course, the formula, as it were, what you say. So, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It can't just be in the name of Jesus, okay? That's that's not a, a, a correct baptism. And the same is true for the sacrament of holy orders, right? The proper matter, if you will, for holy orders is a baptized male, in the forum, there's a form of ordination. At some point, I think they lost the form. But so they they couldn't confect a valid Eucharist even if they wanted to. But and this is Cardinal Newman, Cardinal John Henry Newman, when he converted to Catholicism, and he was I mean, it was front page news. It would have been like Billy Graham in his heyday becoming a Catholic. I mean, he was the most famous Protestant in the world. So when he became Catholic, he said one of the reasons why he did this was he saw one time after an Anglican service, and it was a Eucharistic service, if you will, the hosts that they had used, quote-unquote, after they had some leftover, there wasn't enough people in the pews, whatever, and he said they just threw it into the garbage. And, and he said, there's, there's no way this could be the, the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, because if it is, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have done this. There's just no way. So, I, I, so I, I, it is unfortunate that you're seeing uh, priests allowing these very devout Anglicans to receive the Eucharist. I, don't, I, th I think he's going about this the wrong way. And if they have gone ahead and converted to Catholicism, that's great. I, I would say it's probably in spite of um, them receiving the Eucharist before they've, they've actually entered the church. And by the way, when it comes to liturgical abuses, I mean, I look in the mirror, I, I, I'm ashamed. I, I mean, I can, I can imagine when I was younger, I'm sure that I received the Eucharist in an unworthy manner many multitudes of times, and for that, I'm truly sorry to the Lord. And even during this time when I was in, in, in Protestant ministry and I was 
kind of thinking about coming back into the Catholic Church. I, I did this too. I, I, I received communion. I received our Lord uh, when I was not yet back in the church, and that, that was wrong. I ought not to have done that. And I was certainly starting to believe that the Eucharist was legit, but having said that, I ought not to have done that at that point. So, But th- thank, thank you so much for that call, John. A really interesting call. So, hey, if you're on the line, we've got to take another quick break, but please stay on the line, okay? I'll try to get you right after the break. Mark, Bill, Renata, Patrick, Mary, hang on, okay? If you want to call in, 888-914-9149. Helping you keep your mind off traffic and on the more important things in life. It's Kale Clark on Relevant Radio. Yeah, I've heard that Drew Mariani is in gladiator training right now. Russell Crowe dropped by the studio to kind of get him ready for this Italian pilgrimage. <laughs> Not really. But hey, a lot of people are, are, are fighting about the Eucharist. There's no question about that. We, we're talking about a posthumous essay published uh by Pope Benedict, which he wrote in 2018 about the Eucharist and his concerns about it. Once again, that phone number to call, 888-914-9149. Let's go to Mark in Eureka, California. Hi, Mark. Hi, Hale. Uh, So I think we all have experiences where the Eucharist is not treated as the body of Christ. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and I think a topic for another conversation would be, why is it important to consume the sacrifice? I think that's a whole great topic to explore. Also, I right. think it's wonderful that the priest, the Catholic Church offers a blessing instead. That's what I do, and I think mm-hmm. that the Germans in the World War II or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it's important to know that people don't have to take communion, and that's for the reason, that same reason... Um, and, and I still get the, I, I experience the reverence and the benefit of it all, and I can still go up and, and partake, and, and it's, it's wonderful. But my question to you is, mm-hmm. if, why isn't the, commun- the, the Eucharist actually symbolic? Because aren't we reenacting a Last Supper? If, we're, if, we're, if it's the true body we would be re-sacrificing Christ. At the Last Supper, Christ offered bread and said, this is my body. He didn't offer his literal body. Aren't we reenacting the faithful act that the apostles knew what was, or were supposed to try to understand what was about to happen and the importance of what was about to happen? Well, hey, Mark, first of all, thank you for that call. That's, that's a great, great question. Um, well, let me, let me deal with the last thing that you said first. Um, is, this, is this not sacrificing Christ over and over again? This is, this is a common uh, question that we get from, from non-Catholics. Uh, Christ died once and for all. Uh, as Scripture says, so, so isn't the Mass a re-sacrificing of Christ again and again and again? Not the case at all. What, what's actually happening is we are being made present to the one sacrifice of Christ. Um, it's, it's almost like supernatural time travel. We are there. We are at the Last Supper. We are at the foot of the cross with Mary and St. John. We are at the empty tomb and encountering the resurrected Jesus. So we're not being ripped off, if you will, because we didn't live in the first century in Galilee and we didn't get to walk those dusty roads following the Master. We actually get more than that because we get to be united with him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, sacramentally through, through the Eucharist. And so 
that's what's really going on here. Now, the, the, if you tune in, you might find this interesting. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow on the Faith Explained program, the words of institution, where they come from, what Jesus was drawing on in the Old Testament when he talked about this, because we, we may not have time to get into this tonight, but one of the other things Pope Benedict said in his letter, he talked about, he talked about the meaning of the word Eucharist, and it's not a supper. It's not a supper. Uh, and in Protestant circles, it's often called the Lord's Supper. The word Eucharist is really, really important, but and he's right about that. There's no question about that. Eucharist is Greek for thanksgiving. But Jesus would never have used the, the word Eucharist when he was teaching about the Eucharist, if that makes any sense, because the word Eucharist wouldn't have meant anything to his listeners who are all Jewish, and he was talking about it in a Jewish context. That's why he called it the new manna, you know, the new and much greater manna. And he talked about the blood of the covenant, the blood of the covenant. That actually comes from Exodus chapter 24, and I'm going to explain that on the Faith Explained tomorrow at 1230, so catch that or grab the podcast later. I think you might enjoy that. But in terms of what Jesus actually said, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He said this over, of course, the, the chalice. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Now that, now, that actual word there is anamnesis, anamnesis, which sounds a lot like amnesia. But it's more than just remembering, okay? Don't don't just remember me by doing this. It's not a symbolic, oh man, I kind of feel the presence of Jesus here. I'm remembering what he did for us. No. The word anamnesis means to make present. To make present. So this is a real presence, and we're being made present to it, to the one Eucharistic sacrifice. And so it's a little bit mind-bending for people, for sure, but but that's uh, what's really going on here. And so I, I hope I hope that helps to, to answer your, your questions a little bit there. Uh, you have a lot of stuff to say there, Mark, and I appreciate that call very much. That was Mark in Eureka. Let's go to Mary now uh, from somewhere in Illinois. Hi, Mary. Yes. I have been going to communion since I was six years old. For my first Holy Communion is when I started to go to communion. Mm. But also, we cannot be united to the... Uh, um, uh, blessed sacrament if we have a mortal sin and i think we should have commu- uh, um, confession before mass so that we or whoever is going to receive communion will be in a state of grace because there's no such thing as receiving the communion uh, well that will make a difference in your life if you don't have a clear conscience in other words if we are without mortal sin. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so important, and maybe it would not be so um, a thing that other religions would even think of wanting to be part of because of the fact that, you know, it, we need to be in a state of grace to receive God, yeah. uh, God in our hearts. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Mary, and, and, and we're not just receiving Jesus into our hearts. That's, that's a phrase that you hear a lot. Um, we're actually receiving Christ himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so uh, it's just, a, just a, I, I know you believe that. I just, I just want to make that distinction. And, and you're right to, to say that, of course, uh, we only should be receiving uh, our Lord if we're in a state of grace. If we're not, if we're in a state of objective mortal sin, we know that we receive the Eucharist as a sacrilegious communion. So we're just piling mortal sin upon mortal sin. Not a good idea. And so we've got to go to confession first. If we're aware of, conscious of uh, mortal sin that's been unconfessed, 
And so I, I do think it's a great idea. When, and a lot of parishes have gotten into the habit of, even before daily Mass, just having a little time, a confession time prior to them. And people go to it. And for all those priests out there who are thinking, you know, will this actually work? Would people actually come? They do. They do. They absolutely do. And some parishes, they only have confession times really like once or twice a week, maybe at four o'clock on a Saturday. Well, if you're not going to the Saturday vigil mass, are you really going to go to this? I mean, yeah, of course, if you if you need to, you go, you find it. But I just think there, there should be more in general, in, and this is a very blanket statement, I think there ought to be more opportunities for confession for people. That's just my take on it. Because people do go, they do respond to it. I, I do believe. That's just my, my take. All right, let's go to Patrick in Austin, Texas. Welcome back, Patrick. Hey, Dale, thanks for taking my call. Or as we say here in Texas, howdy. <laughs> Absolutely, um, howdy. You you may have already answered this, so I, I, I'll ask it. Uh, I have an Episcopalian friend, he and I, always have good uh, discussions about mm-hmm. the differences between Episcopalian and Catholic. And, and, yeah. and he looked at me and he said, look, you don't really believe in that real presence stuff, do you? And I, I, and I looked back and I said, well, yes, of course I do. He says, well, you know what, you're the first Catholic that I've met that, that, that does. And so my mm-hmm. question is, um, what about Catholics who go up to communion and they really don't in their heart even believe it's a real presence, and yet they receive, you know, we, we talked about Protestants who believe but they're not able to. What about Catholics who don't believe and they're receiving communion? Yeah, I I think that that's unfortunately epidemic. And like I was saying earlier, if you, if you, I don't know if you caught the whole program, but uh, I I've done this myself in the past being a a nominal Catholic. I've received the Eucharist, uh, not being in a state of grace, not necessarily believing in it, not even knowing what to believe about it. And I I think a lot of people just, they, they want to, they don't want to be seen left behind. So they, they they join the communion line and they receive and and some of them honestly don't know that they ought not to receive if they a don't believe it that it is what the church claims that it is or who it claims it is of course Jesus himself and they also might not even it sounds i know it's hard to believe but a lot of catholics simply don't even know what a mortal sin is they 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 just don't have the formation. And that's that's the state that we're in right now, unfortunately, the state of catechesis in the church. And that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm thankful that Relevant Radio exists, because we want to bring Christ to the world through the media. We want to bring the full meal deal, and no pun intended, the full teaching of, of Christ out there. And it's a it's a vehicle for cate- for catechesis. There's no question about it. And, and we need it. So and I think it's sad what that guy said, that, hey, you're the first Catholic I've ever met who actually does buy into it. So... And that's really important, though. It just speaks to the importance of evangelization, that you might be the only person, everybody listening right now who, who believes in the Eucharist, you might be the only Catholic, practicing Catholic, that your friends, family, neighbors, coworkers know who actually buys into that. So it, it's, a great, it's a great responsibility. It's also a great privilege uh, to be able to share that with others. So thanks, Patrick, once again, uh, for calling in on the road in Ox, Austin, Texas. Let's go to Renata in Salt Lake City, Utah. Hi, Renata. Hi. I had an experience going back to my country, Brazil, where mm-hmm. I, unfortunately, back then, I was living more to sing, and I went to talk to a priest about it, mm. about receiving Eucharist, getting married in the church. It's just very complicated. Long story mm-hmm. short, sure. he told me, look, I don't want to tell you to not approach to have Eucharist. Think about it. It's like a great big dinner, a great big meal that he was prepared for many people. 
and you invite them all to your house. And then some of them do not approach to sit down and to eat. Wouldn't you want everybody to eat your meal that you prepared with so much love? I thought it was interesting how he used the words like meal, mm. feast, supper. Yeah. At the well, time, I knew d- it was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and I know I know that one of the things that I know I can see on the screen that you wanted to say is that unfortunately that that pastor uh, wound up leaving the priesthood, and and that's that's tragic. And, and I just have to jump in, Renata, because because I'm up against it here. That's exactly what Pope Benedict was talking about in this in this essay. He talks about how uh, this language of it's a supper. It's nothing more than something like the meals that Jesus used to share with sinners. He used to always meet and dine with sinners, and people judged him on that. That's not what the Eucharist is about, though. It's not a, a meal of evangelization. It's different. In the early church, they would kick people out who weren't baptized before the liturgy of the Eucharist. It was only for those who'd been baptized, the, the, who were called the elect. And so that's an important distinction uh, that Pope Benedict makes there. So, hey, I, I really want to thank everybody for calling in, and we can pick this up once again uh, tomorrow on the Kale Clark Show. Hope you'll join me then. I'll be back in 23 hours uh, for another episode of the Kale Clark Show, and I appreciate you guys so much. If you missed any of this program, you can obviously get the podcast at relevantradio.com, the Relevant Radio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are here for you. I'll be at the Faith Explained, 1230 Central, tomorrow as well. Stay tuned to Relevant Radio. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Kalock took your phone calls. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy. Changing lives in your neighborhood and across the nation. Here's another relevant radio miracle moment. What's your prayer intention? I ha- well, I have to say that uh, before I found relevant radio, I was actually a pagan, and now for two years I've been listening, and I appreciate everything that you've done for me. God my bless prayer you. Request, thank you. I, I just started getting my daughter in Catholic school. She's five oh. years old. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so cool. And my yeah. prayer request is that is uh, pretty simple. I've been raising her on my own since she was an infant, and um, we want to pray that her mother, Emily, can, um, uh, sorry, it's kind of emotional, That's right. that she can uh, get off get off drugs and uh, come back to God, and, and, and my daughter can have a mom one day. We're all going to pray for that. Mm-hmm. We're going to pray for that with our whole heart. You bet we are. Touch a heart and change a soul by making a donation to Relevant Radio today. You know, the word is spreading around America. This is the go-to place if you've got a prayer and you want the whole country praying for it. So I invite people to join us every night for the Family Rosary Across America Live. 7 p.m. Central. Bringing Christ to the world through the media. Relevant Radio.